Sounds like you want an encore. <laughs> I do. We're going to have a lot of encores tonight, aren't we? So be here at uh, 7 o'clock. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's along toward the middle of the New Testament. And the word 2 Corinthians comes from the fact that Paul wrote at least two letters, may have written a third, we're not sure, but we don't have it, two letters to the church at Corinth. This was a church that had all kinds of difficulties and problems because they lived in a very difficult world, a very complicated world, a world much like the one you and I are living in. Paul spent much of his time there, a great deal of his time there, pastoring and preaching and ministering in Corinth. And in the 17th verse through the 19th verses, we read this marvelous passage of Scripture. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, hear this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There's some very small words in here with very long meaning. The first one is that three little letter word you read in the first phrase, it Therefore, if any, underline any, not just the religious, not the moral, not those who grew up in a fine home, not those who've had a good education, not those that have one color of skin or another that speak one language or another, if any, the unconditional invitation of Jesus Christ to life is for anybody and everybody. No one's excluded. You don't have to take an entrance exam. You just need to meet the teacher. And lessons begin and life begins to change. The unconditional invitation, if any, that means me. That means you. Whoever you are and whatever we've done or not done in the past, all of that makes no difference. If we come to Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, we use, he uses that word twice. He says it again, new creature, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. In the Greek language, there are two words for new. The Greek language is very, very uh, flexible. It, it has more words uh, to describe uh, events, feelings, attitudes uh, than the English language does. For example, love. We have one word, love. And we say, I love God, I love apple pie, I love my car, I love the Dallas Cowboys, whatever. But we use just one word to describe that. But the Greeks had four words. Agape, phileo, eros, and storge. Four words. First one means God kind of love. Phileo means special friend kind of love. Fidelity, where we get that word. Eros means physical, sexual love and relationship. Storge means affection. So they have four different words. And they have two different words for new. Naos and Kairos. Naos means something that is new in point of time. Uh, for example, this Bible uh, is not all that new, but it's fairly new to me. So I can say this Bible is new 
But if I were a Greek, I would say this Bible is naos. It is new in point of time. It's not the first Bible. There are millions and millions of, of Bibles that have preceded the one I have in my hand. So if I say this is a new Bible, you would understand that I mean it in new in terms of time, relation to time. Kairos means new in terms of relationship and essence. When God created the world, he created it new. And kairos is the word Paul uses here. He is saying that when you come to Christ, you have a unique, personal experience with him. Millions of other people have trusted him, and their lives have been changed by him. But what he does in your life is a first-time event. As much a first-time event as what's creation. He creates a new person, Kairos. We're not just one in a long line of Christians where we've sort of inherited their faith to us. We've been influenced by their faith. We've been challenged by their faith. But our experience with Jesus Christ is holy and totally new. We become new persons. New in terms of relationship, in terms of essence, in terms of who we are. Because there's nobody else in the world like you. No one else in the world like you. And when Christ comes into your life, there will be no other Christian in the world like you. And that's why he says every one of us have a ministry of reconciliation. Because every one of us is a unique, one-of-a-kind Christian. Kairos Christians. Made new by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Kairos new. The old things have passed away. All things have become kairos, new. He puts a whole new life in those who put their faith and trust in him. So the result of that is that he creates a lot of eccentrics. That's a, may sound strange to stand up here and say, everybody in this room who is a Christian, who knows Christ is his or her savior, is an eccentric, but you are. There's a difference from neuroses and psychosis and eccentrics, but we normally put those three together as some sort of uh, a mental illness. Not so with eccentric. Uh, eccentrics are not mentally ill. Neurotics live under a terrible burden at times, either pre, uh, imposed upon them by family or circumstances or situations, or they have fears that are irrational, and they want to get rid of those. They want a healthy and happy life. The eccentric is completely happy. And he wants everybody to enjoy what he's, what he's enjoying. And so every Christian is an eccentric because the word eccentric means having a new center, a person with a different center, eccentric. The moment you become a Christian, you are no longer the person you were. You become now an individual operating out of a new center, and that center is Christ. We become Christocentric instead of egocentric. Some of the most famous people in the world are eccentrics. I just read a book a year or so ago about eccentrics and went back and reviewed it some in light of this message. Eccentrics know they're different and they celebrate it. It's not something they want to get, get rid of. It's not, not something that they want to shed themselves from, like a neurotic or a psychotic would. 
Uh, let me list uh, a few of the people that are considered eccentrics. William Blake, Alexander Graham Bell, Emily Dixon, Einstein, Beethoven, Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton, etc., etc., etc. Creative people. Letting their own creative gen genius that God gave them be used to reach out and touch the world. They're not like anybody else, nor are you. We're all one of a kind, kairos, new people, the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which means we operate out of a different center. Thoreau picked it up when he talked about marching to a different drummer. We're marching to a different drummer. We're not marching as a Christian to our own desires and to our feeding our own ego. We're living for Christ. It is Christ in me that's the hope of glory. Christ in you, in you, in you. 160 times in his writings, Paul uses the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. 160 times. And when you're in Christ, when he's the center of your life, you're an eccentric. You don't operate the same way that people who don't know Christ live. You have a different center, a different motivation for living because you are a kairos, a new person made new in Jesus Christ. When that happens, we have an inevitable new understanding of the nature and character of God. How do we do it? Because he's come to live within us. And we begin to familiarize ourselves with this new person who's living within us and dictating the policy and giving us guidance and direction. So we begin to know him and we begin to uh, have fellowship with him inside our own minds and inside our, ex our experience, inside our spirit. And as a result, we come to understand more of the nature of God because God is in us through faith in Christ. My son Mike teaches uh, Bible study in our church. I hear great things about his teaching. I've never been able to go hear him teach because he's teaching down there while I'm here preaching. So uh, he is a, he's a real student. And he's a great admirer of Philip Yancey, as most of us are. Philip Yancey's book, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew, is one of the best books I've read in the last number of years. Johnny White reviewed it in one of the library emphases uh, a few weeks ago. Well, Michael's been corresponding with Philip Yancey, and Philip Yancey sent Mike a chapter out of his newest book, which will be out in September. And, and the name of the book is What's So Amazing About Grace? And here is part of a first chapter of, of a chapter. Let me read it to you. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith. Think about that. Unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation? Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. In his forthright manner, Lewis responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. You'll not find that in any other religion of the world. And he delineates this. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity.
the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Grace, if any, kairos, eccentric, new persons in Christ Jesus. When that happens, we begin to get a different view of ourselves, don't we? When Christ comes into our lives, he holds up a mirror. We look into that mirror and we see blemishes on our spiritual countenance that we go to work to ask him to help us improve. Attitudes, desires, thoughts, actions. We let the, cosme the cosmetics of the Spirit of God come to start working in our lives, inwardly and outwardly. We have a different attitude about ourselves. And we have a different attitude about other people. And we have a new responsibility to other people. Do you hear what Paul says here? Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. If you're a Bible student, you probably know this. It may, sound, it may be new to you, but it's very important. Nowhere, nowhere, absolutely nowhere in the Bible will you read about God being reconciled to man. Not one time. You never read about God being reconciled to us because God didn't leave us. We left him. We're the ones that need to be reconciled. And every time that word is used in the scripture, it has to do with man being reconciled to God. God hasn't moved away. We move away. So here he is saying this again. We have been reconciled to himself, us to himself through Christ and gave us the, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That means to be bridge builders, helpers, encouragers, support, loving one another. All these things are from God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses. God does not keep score. No scoreboards in heaven. God does not keep score. Does not count our sins against us. He has committed to us and to the world the ministry of reconciliation. Reconcile to God and reconcile to others. Passage of scripture I read earlier from the 12th chapter of Mark. The religious leader questioning Jesus about the greatest commandment. Well, the greatest commandment is this. And he goes back into the Old Testament, picks up a verse out of Leviticus and another out of Deuteronomy and puts them together and makes a single commandment of them. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, Jesus says that's the greatest commandment that ought to get the greatest attention from every one of us. Love God. Be reconciled to God. Have a kairos experience with God. Be made a new person through God, in, in God through Christ. Start living to a different drummer. Start listening to this new center of your being, which is Christ. And then start reaching out to others to minister to them, to love them, to help them. The church ministering to those in the church. Encouragement. Not a perfect person in this room. Never has been. Never will be until Jesus bodily returns. We're all here because we've been forgiven and God scratched out the score that was against us and reconciled us to him. And he says, now go tell everybody that I love them and I want to forgive their sins and they be reconciled to me and reconciled to each other. Make our homes different. 
If we could understand the dynamic power of Jesus Christ in a person's life and in their relationships to people around them, we would see a dramatic decline in the divorce rate in America, which is one of the most tragic things happening. We're not being reconciled. We want to be reconciled to God, but we're not being reconciled to each other, to our neighbor. In the 10th chapter of Luke, the same account is given, and this uh, religious leader asked a question, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is anybody that comes across your path or you come across theirs who needs help. Anybody. You know who your closest neighbor is? When I say that, you probably think of the person who lives on either side of you. If you're married, have children, your closest neighbor is your spouse and your children. If you're single, your closest neighbor are those you work with, socialize with, go to church with. It's not somebody down the street we've never met. It's somebody living in the same house with us that we need to meet again in new and fresh ways, Kairos ways, being reconciled and then being reconcilers, bringing people to Christ. When our son Steve was, uh, let me be sure about the age, 11 years of age, Martha had to bring me up to date on this. It was 19, I believe it was 1970 or 71, when we had been to Eastern Europe with the Sound Foundation, this singing group of young people, and we went to Russia and to Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and sharing the gospel, endeavoring to encourage Christians mainly and to reach out as we had the opportunity to minister to people who were not Christians. We came back and we had a series of services in London. We went to a church out on the outskirts of London and the Sound Foundation sang and I preached and they had some refreshment for us and we got in our bus and we started back to the hotel which is way on the other side of London which is a huge city in geographical uh, definitions and, and population as well. We were driving along about 10 o'clock at night and Leroy Yarbrough, our minister of music then and Charlie Hamill, our minister to students then, the three of us were sitting in the bus just talking. The kids, most of them, the sponsors that were along were all asleep. We'd been traveling hard and going hard, and they were tired. And suddenly we came up. I recognized it immediately from pictures. We came up upon the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached. Seating, at, in his day, over 4,000 people. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is read by everyone who preaches the gospel. I got the opportunity to spend an evening in the home of Bishop Fulton J. Sheen many years ago. And I was looking at his library. We were talking about his library. He had all 20 volumes, like I do, of Spurgeon sermons. Fantastic preacher. Some say the greatest man ever to preach in the English language. Well, we, I wanted to see it. The front I, was the same as it had always been. The rest of it had been bombed out uh, during World War II. So I asked the bus driver, would you stop? And uh, he said, sure. And I said, I want to go in there. I just want to walk in the same door that Charles Haddon Spurgeon walked in uh, to get into what is known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Well, Charlie and Leroy said, yeah, I want to see it too. Steve said, I want to go. He wasn't asleep. He was sitting there next to us. And so Steve got out, came into the church with us. And they were having a of the conclusion of a Bible study. There were about 50 people there kind of milling around talking and book uh, tables out there with books on them. 
And we went to the museum and over there to look at a, a bust of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I was just captivated by the whole thing. And Steve was with me. But, and, I, and, and he says, Dad, you even talked to me. You just never looked at me. I was saying, there's Spurgeon, there's his picture, and there's some of his sermon notes, and there's one of his Bibles. I mean, that doesn't sound exciting to you, but to a preacher, it's exciting. And uh, so I kept talking, and we said, well, we better get out of here. We got to go. So we ran back and got on the bus, started back to our hotel, which is way on the other side of London. And we got down by Big Ben, it was getting foggy. And I said, uh, Steve, there's Big Ben. Steve, there's Big Ben. We suddenly realized that Steve hadn't gotten on the bus. I panicked. I told the bus driver, I said, let me out, I can run back. He said, I can get you back there faster. So he spun around and we went back. It was about a five or six, maybe 10 minute drive. We got there, the place was just dark as pitch. Everybody had gone. Charlie and Leroy and I got out. We went around the back. We climbed over a fence. We were yelling. I was, I, can, I, I cannot describe to you the emotion I had, the feeling I had. Martha back at the hotel with Lisa, who was just a few months old, and she didn't go with us that night. We looked and could not find him. An, an older couple came walking up to us on the street, and they said, are you looking for a little boy? We said, Yes. Do you know where he is? He, they said, well, we saw him chasing this bus down the street. <laughs> and he started crying. And so we asked him what was the trouble. And he was trying to then to get a city bus to see if they, maybe they could take him to the, to the New Langham Hotel where we were staying. And this couple saw how terrified he was and frightened, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night on the streets. So they hailed a, a taxi cab. And they said to the taxi driver, you take this young boy to the hotel. He knows where he's staying. You take him to the hotel, and when he gets there, he'll get the money to pay you, because I'm sure he has family there. He described who we were and that we'd gone on the bus, not knowing that we'd left him behind. Well, when the bus pulled up in front of the hotel, I jumped out and nearly got hit by a car, because they drive on the wrong side of the street in, in London. <laughs> I really, I nearly did. I nearly, I ran out from behind that bus and the car looked to the left and the car was coming from the right. Uh, and I ran in there and Steve was in the room with Martha and Lisa and he, he had been crying and my wife was not happy at all. <laughs> I cannot emphasize that strongly enough. I felt like the worst pagan that ever lived to go off and leave your son. And we got to talking about it and prayed about it and I asked the Lord to forgive me and I asked Steve to forgive me. And Martha said, Steve, you know that's a great church. That was a great church. Has been for years. Under Spurgeon's ministry, thousands and thousands of people came to the Lord in that church. Thousands of people were saved. And Steve's mind works in a very creative way, always has. He said, yes, yeah, thousands of people were saved in that church, but I was lost there. <laughs> can you be lost in church? Surely can. 
You can get so interested in buildings, furnishings, history, that we overlook people. That's exactly what I did to Steve. I overlooked him. I never looked at him. Talked to him. Really talking more to myself than to him. Lost in church. May that never happen here. There are people in your Sunday school class that haven't been there for maybe months or years. They're lost. I don't mean they're not going to go to heaven. I don't mean that at all. That, the word lost has many, many meanings. It literally means somebody that's out of place. Someone that's out of place. It's not connected. The people in your Sunday school class that are lost, they need to be back in this wonderful fellowship, back in your class, back in worship. Maybe someone here today been wandering around for weeks or months or maybe even years looking for a church home. God may be leading you here, and if He is, we invite you warmly and cordially to be a part of this service. But there's some people that are lost spiritually, and they can be in church too. They can belong to church and still be lost because we're not saved by church. We're saved by being reconciled to God through Christ and becoming new creations, Kairos new creations in Christ Jesus. And so if you've never trusted Him as your Savior, never invited Him into your heart, you may be a church member, but you don't feel you've ever had a personal experience with Christ, I want to invite you today, along with the Apostle Paul and the work of the Holy Spirit, to say to you, if any man, any woman, any child come to me, he is a Kairos creation a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'll be right here to greet you and welcome you as you come to make whatever decision God's Holy Spirit is prompting you to make. I'll be right here. Let's stand, let's sing together.